0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: And welcome to this week's episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr Shane. You are listening to 3RRR. In the studio with me is her pregnant self, Dr Lauren.
0: <laughs> Good morning, Dr Shane. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm actually, was just thinking before, at some point, I'm not going to fit behind this radio desk anymore. Well, the
1: good thing is these microphones are sort of telescopic, so we can actually, <laughs> we can send the, the microphone I out to I can be you. outside
0: the studio <laughs> and still be okay. Fantastic.
1: <laughs> I didn't quite say that, but <laughs> whatever you think whatever you is going to happen, you, you know, it's your body. Yeah, that's it. Dr. Ray?
2: Uh, morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I am. Uh, last night, we went to White Night. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which, which is, you know, the thing to do with a six-year-old. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, you didn't stay all night. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. Uh, and yeah. did,
0: did, you, you didn't lose him? Because I've no, heard it was no. really crowded. Yes, yes, and, yeah. uh,
2: there was one part where I was carrying him and <laughs> yeah, using yeah, him yeah, as yeah. a battering ram to get through. But um, aside from the, the great things that were out there and exhibits and really, really cool artistic light installations, my son made the most fantastic observation. He goes, What does RMIT stand for? And I told him. He goes, And he looks at the logo. He goes, Daddy, the logo kind of looks like a Death Star that's just half built. <laughs> I'm so proud at that moment.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think well they, they don't really use the full name for the university anymore. Because you know, Royal Melbourne Institute yeah, of Technology yeah. University kind of sounds a bit like they put an extra word in that they shouldn't. Yeah. So RMIT uh, University. Yeah. But that little red dot, he's like, it looks like a Death Star. Yeah, not it quite does done a bit. It does okay. a bit. Yeah. Some <laughs> of the some of the buildings down on Swanson Street look well, a well, bit <laughs> <laughs> Death Star-ish. Mm. Yeah, they're very modern. Very cool. Age. Well, let's get into some science news. Uh, did you remember to bring your news?
0: I did, I did. I was pretty proud of Myself. Good job.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
0: What do you got? Well, actually, I'm going to stay on the whole space age thing. Um, We've talked quite a few times on the show about, you know, nature-inspired robotics and technology. And a paper just has come out this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science from the University of California, Berkeley, looking at uh, this new type of robot that are called CRAM. So they're compressible robots with articulated mechanisms and I quite liked Cram. It's, you know, the Cram robot. Right.
2: Okay.
0: (laughs) But basically, these are robots that are actually based around uh, the physiology and the structure of a cockroach. So as we all know, cockroaches are incredibly good at getting into places Mm. that they shouldn't be. They're incredibly hard to kill. And so they're actually looking at designing these types of robots to use in natural disaster areas, for example. So if there's an earthquake, they can actually send these robots in to take some images and see what's around. Uh, But to do this, they actually did um, a whole lot of studies looking at the cockroach itself, which... Um, really investigated its structure in a little bit more detail than what had been done previously. And they found that the cockroach can compress its exoskeleton in less than a second down to a quarter of what its height is normally. So that's in less than a second. It can get itself down that small. It can then obviously get through very confined spaces. But when it's in those confined spaces, so when it's squashed to a quarter of its normal size, it can still move at 20 body lengths per second.
1: 20 body lengths so, per second. think about
0: the size of a cockroach, that, 20 times its length in that's, a second. That's, that's
2: crazy.
1: That's, that's just way
0: disturbing. too fast for a so,
2: cockroach. So I'm just, well, I'm just... I'm, I'm Imagining a, me squashed to a quarter of my size, well, moving at 20 body lengths no, per second. No, I, se- I yeah. wasn't
1: actually, but now that you've put it in my head. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, nice uh-huh. <laughs> But no, I, I was just, I'm a size 11. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. So that means, well and truly, if I squash it to a third of its size, <laughs> at the heel of my foot, it can still crawl out the toe. Uh-huh. Yep, yep.
0: And this is... And this cool. not be dead. Ooh. Well, the other thing that they found, which is true, I think, you know, obviously they're really hard to kill cockroaches. Oh, yeah. The yeah. reason they found is that you can actually, um, the, the cockroach can withstand forces of nearly 900 times its body weight without any injury. So, you sort of, if you're trying to squash a cockroach, you've got to actually, you know, have that force of more than 900 times its body weight.
1: Yeah, they don't weigh much though.
0: Well, that's true, but the, it's obviously yeah. we're not getting there because I can never get them to squash if I'm trying to get rid of them.
1: Cricket pet, Yeah. <laughs> Sledgehammer, or oh, an American baseball bat. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: actually, it's cricket bag's flatter. I think you got a better shot.
1: Well, the end is flatter. It's yeah, kind of flat. Yeah, a little yeah. curvature too gives you a bit of um, bit yeah. of give. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. But the um, the other cool thing that they're using with these cram robots is actually the way that the the cockroaches can move. So when they're squashed, they're not able able to use their legs as they normally would mm. because their legs mm. are splayed out. And so what they're actually doing is um. They're using these tiny little spines along the tibia of its leg and they're actually sort of moving to to allow it to crawl by almost um, sort of articulating to to let the cockroach kind of slide along rather than walk. And so, again, they're now using this sort of idea in in these robots so that you can have them flat, squishing, and moving really quickly through spaces. It's very interesting. Mm. Very interesting. It's like
2: the hairs on your your, your toes, your arms working as extra legs. Yeah,
0: Exactly. Exactly.
2: Dr. Ray, who do right. you go first? Um, uh, I, have a, I, have, I have crowdsourced science for you, Shane. I, oh, yeah. your, your favorite
1: Always topic. Lo- I, well, I do. I love it when the crowd's involved.
2: Um, this one I rather like, my <laughs> shake. It is a crowdsourced, funding appro- crowdsourced science approach to detecting early warning networks for earthquakes. Now, um, most of the time, early warning systems work on seismic sensors, mm. which in some areas where you have seismic sensors work great but if you're in a smaller area or an area that doesn't have size mixed center centers, you don't have early warning mm. systems. Mm. What is everywhere are mobile phones. Mm. And modern mobile phones don't just have GPS, which has been shown to be able to help... St- Uh, look for earthquakes, they have accelerometers in them. Mm -hmm. And so this study um, out of Berkeley was actually looking at uh, proof of concept of using an early warning system for mobile phones. Now, I have to point out and they did too, these scientists, that there's plenty of other crowdsourcing approaches that have been used for mobile phones, including, and I love the names of the networks, the Quake quake Catcher Network, (laughs) the Community Seismic Network, uh, that primarily used MEMS devices, piece of Previously, people have used GPS to show this, mm-hmm. and the U.S. Geological Service had a web-based one, which was my favorite because it was "Did you feel it?" <laughs> the system on, uh, on uh, websites. So fantastic titles. Um, what uh, what they did
1: was they. Um, well, and there's no. Did the earth move for you? <laughs> but- because that, no, that no, people no, would yeah, download that, that one. Oh, totally. Not for the right reasons, no. but once it's downloaded on the phone, you know, people yeah. just leave it there and it could be working <laughs> in the background.
2: Yeah, my shake, I, I do wonder about that strategy. But yeah. what, what was nice about the study was is they actually spent a lot of time benchmarking accelerometers on phones. People have used dedicated mm-hmm. phones to study this before, to mm-hmm. be part of a network, but actually everybody's phone while well, it's doing other things and you're playing Star Wars Lego Saga... That's not a personal thing, right? <laughs> anyway. Um, th- that uh, th- that they they actually still work. And as an anecdote, they pointed out you can record a five a magnitude five earthquake at a distance of ten kilometers. On a phone detection system. And that's quite
0: mm. amazing if you think about, like, you know, when you're using your phone. So say if you can can you so if you were going for a run, for example, mm. do you think it could still pick it up? Like so if your phone is bouncing.
2: They actually spent a lot of time benchmarking what was accelerometer patterns for non-human behavior for human mm. behavior. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And then they said what's well, the anomaly? Yeah. And yeah. the beauty of it is if it's a distributed sensor network, they all do it. They all do mm. it. Mm. So there's there's so many sensor points that yeah. it was yeah. about the algorithms and processing for Dealing with a large amount of data because mm. you have so many sensors.
0: Mm. So would people have to sign up for that, or could yeah, that you, be? You'd yeah, you have to I'd download
1: know. the app. But da- I, know, yeah. I know there's very specific regulations with Apple and, and various companies too. on releasing both the GPS and accelerometer mm. data through apps, like you can't just write an app and do it. It's, mm. it's actually not that easy to get access to to some of that data. Mm. So, it, I mean, this I, I find this fascinating because the, the work that was done a you know, year or so ago at in Berkeley was around the fact that, you know, there were a small number of, you know, relatively mm-hmm. small number of um, distributed, very spe- specific sensors mm. designed to pick up earthquakes. But I think that, that piece of work, they said they needed a minimum of 5,000 phones. Mm-hmm. What's the California population there, <laughs> I was just thinking, yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> well, you know 5,000 phones. You know yeah. what I mean? That's, yeah. that, that'd be the most unsuccessful app ever released. You know? well,
2: interesting what you say about, you know, it's complicated to get access to mm. things. They started with Android, which is ah, yeah, smaller yeah. rules. So my yeah. shake, I think they actually are looking at putting up an Android app because yeah, that's well, what they wrote it up. I think there's
1: more of those now anyway, isn't there? Aren't they, aren't they outselling Apple? Oh, yeah, really? No, it's a track well, no. mm-hmm. Can we blasphemy to say that on there? <laughs> you're you're going to get <laughs> I don't over give that a crap. <laughs> 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 now, um, you guys are interested in running uh, somewhere between four and seven kilometres a night in order to enhance your immune systems if you were to get cancer?
0: Oh, okay. Oh, if you if could prevent it, I would.
1: Mm, well, yeah. sadly, that's what it is for a mouse. Oh, really? I'm not sure how it tracks for a human. Oh, uh, oh dear. Uh, so that's a long but, way. <laughs> uh, we go by body length, we're yeah, in trouble. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> well, this is the interesting thing, actually. At the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, um, a guy um, named Peniel Hodgman has been working... Um, sorry, a lady named Peniel Hodgman has been working on um, the idea... That we can sort of supercharge our immune system um, by by exercising, and it's a way to either prevent um, yeah. cancers occurring. Or halt their growth mm. once they have occurred. Definitely not remove them. So just to be clear, there it's mm. only the first two. Sure. Um, she's been doing these experiments with mice, and uh, there's there's a great line in the article I read about this. Apparently, the mice chose to run between four and seven kilometers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Cho- chose to run. Okay. Um, anyway, it, it managed to up the sort of um, the sort of reduction in. Growth and, mm. and slowing the growth by about sixty percent um, mm. of these tumors, which is that is not an insignificant mm. result. That is mm. quite extraordinary. In fact, a lot of drugs that do that are seen as you know amazing. Mm. Um, of course, the, the question is, um, how would that translate into humans? And none of this has been done in, in human studies. Mm. Um, but they did do it for a variety of different types of cancers, including some of our biggest ones, you know, being skin cancer and, and liver cancer, the ones that are really, really problematic. Mm. Um, lung cancer, um, they did about six different main ones. So, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it sort of shows you that, you know, your body as it's producing adrenaline switches on a lot of different things. Mm. Mm. Um, and that our, you know, the big push at the moment, whenever you hear cancer stories at the moment, they seem to be about switching our immune system Mm. on, getting our cells to kill the cancer. That seems to be the approach that we're moving into as opposed to the previous approach, which was chemotherapy and Mm. and surgery. Um, So, you know, if we can get our own bodies to quite cancers, which they're naturally designed to do anyway. In a better way, we might have a better chance. But yeah, for the seven kilometres. I was trying to do the math there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, you've got to at least multiply it by 10.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, all of a sudden that's not as big <laughs> yeah, as bitterly, now,
1: that's probably not right, <laughs> but that's 40 to 70 kilometres <laughs> <Yeah>. a night... <laughs> <laughs> so, have,
2: have people ever looked at cancer rates in ultra marathon runners?
1: Yeah, that's a, it's a very good question mm-hmm. actually, and and I think um, looking at you know um, whether or not I guess you wouldn't know the the sort of answer to the question of once they get cancer how does yeah. their running affect mm-hmm. them because they probably mm-hmm. stop, but the the actual um, the number of them getting cancer might mm-hmm. be might be different. At least the progression might be very slow at the start. So it's it's an interesting study. Mm-hmm. One of um, one of
0: many. So. It's it is a fascinating area. So, we're, um, at the Centre for Eye Research Australia where I work, um, we're looking there's a group looking at you know whether or not eye pressure is affected by exercise and eye disease. You know, so it's quite yeah. amazing to think that going for a run might affect your eyes, for example, and cancer and things like that. So, it is um, it's, it's a growing area.
1: So, do they think it's a positive effect?
0: Yeah. So, yeah. if you stop
1: watching television, yeah. go outside. Exactly. It might, yeah, I mean, you, you can get just, off
0: the couch, it, it helps.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 amazing how much just keeping moving mm. keeps us healthy. I think mm. I think people have this, you know, there's. This myth at the moment of this, you know, everyone has to go to the gym and all this sort of stuff. Mm. But I, I know my uncle, who's, you know, in his 70s now, one of the fittest guys I know, mm. and he walks everywhere. Yeah. He's always walking. He's, you know, one minute he's doing, you know, he's, he's in Nepal, next minute he's somewhere in Africa, you know, doing every mountain he can, he can climb. Yeah. Um, but he's very healthy. But he's always moving. Yeah. He's never sat down and stopped. I'm not sure, sure if the guy even owns a television. Yeah, actually, lives yeah. in that. Being said, he lives in Torquay. Um, but you know, yep. drives a 57 Mustang. Yeah, who great. needs a TV? <laughs> um, but you know, it, it is that that mindset. I think of, of keeping mm-hmm. moving. That's going to be my philosophy. It's a great um, one. Uh, this is starting to happen, folks. Sorry. If you've been listening to me on radio for the last 22 and a half years, I'm getting older now. So I'm starting <laughs> to talk about stuff that before I just didn't give a toss about. <laughs> now we're going to somehow stay young.
4: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: We have our first guest for today in the studio. It is the President, Peter Elwood, is the President of the Space Association Australia Inc. Welcome to the studio, Peter. G'day Shane, thank you. Welcome. It's good to have you in. Now we we had a, a lot of interactions last year when Buzz Aldrin came out, which was you know you and I drooling at the yeah. same event. <laughs> Absolutely, um, interesting stuff and a lot about how. Um, our listeners got tickets, which was great. Hopefully they enjoyed it as well. Give us a bit of an idea what the Space Association of Australia does um, because we don't have a space program here. So what, what, do, you, what do you guys do? Do you sit around Hope? Or? We, no, we do, <laughs> we we do, do a lot that, yeah.
5: Um, yeah, the Space Association has been around uh, for over 30 years. It sort of grew out of uh, a Monash uh, group uh, many, many years ago. Mm. Um, we uh, were quite large, we really came to being just when the space shuttle started flying in '91, oh, yeah. yep. And um, of course, <clears throat> this is back in the olden days, pre-internet. So the only place that people could really get up-to-date space news was an organization like ours. Mm. We had direct contacts with NASA on the mailing list, et cetera. So people would come along on, on at the meetings and yeah. we'd put the Super 8 movies in and, uh, you know, all that stuff and, uh, and give them all the updates on, on space and what was happening. Um, Of course, once the internet became uh, more uh, apparent and more obvious and more uh, available, interest in that became less because people just have their fingertips. Mm, mm. What we've noticed in the last three or four years, um, since I became president, no. um, (laughs) the, the, the last few years, people actually now really enjoy... And see the benefit of getting together you know i think yeah. the whole meetup thing you know the yeah. meetup groups uh, is is testament to that you know people rather than sit in their bedrooms in the middle of the night you know looking at something love getting together chatting ex- exchanging ideas mm. and mm. debating we have a lot of debates about what to do and where to go yeah. so it's good it's a good bunch of people and yeah. we meet um on the fourth monday of every month so it's this monday Tomorrow, yeah, yes. Yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, At the Caulfield RSL, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's free. Anyone can turn up, no invitation required. And you just go in, go upstairs. Uh, you can actually get meals there and drinks and, and things. And uh, we've got a, a good program tomorrow night, actually. We've got, um, we've got to get, we have guest speakers and we have different topics and yeah. different scenarios each week. Tomorrow night, we've got um, uh, Dr. James Waddy, who's talking about his gravity loading countermeasures skin suit which right. actually flew up on the space station. Yeah. As you may or may not know, when astronauts go up in space in zero G, because they haven't got uh, gravity on their bodies, deterioration of mm, muscles and muscles, so. Yeah. Mm. so these, he's working with other collaborators around the world on this um, suit that sort of somehow or other compresses and puts mm. pressure on the body to try to counteract those um, degradations. So we're gonna learn a bit about that tomorrow night. Then we've got um some updates on latest space news, which we mm-hmm. do every month. Um we're gonna look back at um astronaut uh, um Edgar Mitchell, who passed yep. away just recently. Yeah. He was uh, on Apollo Fourteen. 14. Yep. Yep. So there's only a few of those left. Yeah. He was he was the the last surviving member of the Apollo 14 mission, there, wasn't
1: He yes. Yeah. So, all so there's away, no yeah. there's no one there to tell us the story of Apollo 14 anymore in mm. the sense. Apollo 14
5: and Apollo 14 is yeah. unique as well because it had uh, uh, Alan Shepard, who mm. was one of the original, original Mercury Seven yep. astronauts, who was grounded for about ten years, yeah. and mm. then pushed away the, front of the queue and got himself a commander's position yeah. on Apollo 14. Yeah, so he had so, uh, a heart
1: you he had a heart murmur
5: or something. Is that right? Is that, I'm trying to remember. There no, was it was an inner ear sort of ear thing. Yeah, it was something yeah, that he had. Yeah, yeah. For his
1: whole life, though, pretty much. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They did
5: do some, some surgery to correct it. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. Mm. So, um, so that should be fascinating. And then uh, to round it off, we um, we've got a, a, a guy dialing in from Perth who's establishing the Australian Space Party. <laughs> yes. Mm. So um, his concept and the concept, which sort of we're throwing our sort of weight behind, much as uh, not, not too much weight, but a bit of weight, is to try and elevate. Space as a as a topic, as an industry, as a as a as a focus for Australia, into sort of more of the mainstream. You know, um, hmm. you know, we've had the shooters party, we've got the voting uh, enthusiasts party, party the sex yep. party. Mm-hmm. Um, so we think that there's a real opportunity here with the election this year to ab- you know put space t- more to the fore. Um, um, and try to get some attention from government, from from the general public.
1: Elections don't usually get me excited, but if if somehow, by some miracle, the space party member held the balance of power. Man, be launch pads in every city. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we have we would have a space shuttle by twenty twenty. There is no doubt about. It. Well, yeah. not a space shuttle, actually, deep space. Something deep space. Yeah, a lot of, <laughs> lot of debate about this space shuttle. Yeah, 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 yeah. no, yeah. I agree with you. Um, well, maybe just you know, just get one of the shuttles out here and
5: park it in the museum, <laughs> Melbourne Museum. Well, if you are listening, it's you interesting know? you you say that, Shane. I mean. Um, when people, one of the things that a lot of people are pushing and one of the space party's aims would be to establish an Australian space agency. Mm. A lot of people sit back and go, oh, my goodness, a NASA, you know, a Kennedy yeah. Space Center, yeah, launch yeah. pads, astronauts, moon doesn't rovers, lots of stuff. Yeah. Uh, doesn't have to be that. Mm. And, and um, you know, Canada's got a space agency, uk got a space agency, and there's a such a big gamut of... Um, Requirements, technology, skills, mm. and and specialities in in the whole space area, and we think that you know trying to focus Australia on just one small segment, mm. and we've got some expertise in those areas. Mm. You know, we, we at the moment we it's estimated that there's, there's about ten thousand people employed in Australia on, on the space and space related yeah. things, mm. and. Um, we don't really we don't get the critical mass um, mm.
1: from them. I mean, we've we've had many of them on this on this show, and we often hear that they're working or travelling to the US all the time for their work. And you know, it'd be nice to have that coordinated through here.
2: Well, that's it, it's nice. So I was wondering, one of the largest technological achievements that people have done is actually the International Space Station, mm. and there are ways you can actually do scientific experiments up there. And I wonder if Australia had their own space agency, would we have a be better positioned to access the the queue for space station experiments and things like that. I know it's a competitive process now, but <laughs> countries that are less organized probably have more mm. problems accessing yeah.
5: that. Well, yeah, dead right. I mean, we've actually Australia's had invitations from multiple different uh, organizations to be involved. In fact, back in the you know nineties or the eighties, we were actually invited by the US to um, to have to. to uh, have an, an Australian astronaut train mm. and fly on a, on a space shuttle. Mm. Uh, and we decided no. Mm. Um, you know, and Andy, was, Andy Thomas ended up going and becoming a US Andy citizen. Andy Thomas didn't became, he. A, and yeah. Paul Scully Power, yeah. both, both Australian yeah. born. Um, but yeah, you're dead right. Um, and there was a facility at the moment, and there, we, Australians actually have had things fly on the space station and the space shuttle in the past. But one of the things that really sparks my interest is the uh, partnerships, particularly that you can have with the European Space Agency, mm-hmm. and Canada does this. Basically what happens there is they become an associate member of the European Space Agency, outside the world. But what that allows you to do, um, the European Space Agency, when they contract out for products, services, et cetera, they tender out or they give contracts to their member states. Mm-hmm, yep. If you're not in European Space Agency, you can't, you can't submit. Do it. Yeah. yeah, the beauty of that is, of course, is that like Canada, I think they're an associate member. I think they they contribute 100 million dollars a year to the European Space Agency, but for that, they get about 200 million dollars mm. of business Contracts, out of yeah, the European yeah. Space Agency. Mm. Now, Canada is not that much bigger than Australia as far as population mm. and GDP and that sort of thing, mm. but they've got those Canada arms and a whole lot of mm. amazing technology that's. Basically, flourished out of a, a small investment, mm. uh, and it's now a self-sustaining entity. You know, so. And I
1: think it's just the inspiration that the nation gets being involved mm. in this too. And I know people talk about the excessive use of funds for for the Apollo program and so forth, but the you know if you actually do add up the the technologies that came out of that the. The, the, just the, the push to industry that that gave in in the United States it it really was good good value for money beyond beyond just the to me what was just an amazing feat of, of you know human intelligence to actually get get someone to to walk on
5: on an object so you know three days travel away at a very high speed mm. well so, some, yeah. some, something you can't measure though is, mm. as you rightly mentioned inspiration mm. the number of high-level scientists whether they're geologists physicists mm. astronomers whatever and you ask them about their origin and they they said, "Oh, I was really inspired when I was a little kid watching them walk on the moon, Mm, you know, and mm, that sets them off on mm. a whole path. Mm. But um, the interesting thing that people probably don't think about, you know, they, you talk about an Australian Space Agency, for example, well, why would Australia spend money on space? It's just waste, you know. Well, as we sit here right now in 2016, we spend about seven or eight billion dollars a year on space. Australia does. Yeah, so it's we really spend money yeah, yeah, in space. Yeah. Just on bring them together. But what mm. we do, we spend it as a retail customer. Mm. Mm. We buy all the services yep. at full retail, satellites, mm-hmm. whatever, mm. whatever. If we can become part of the supply chain, we can go retail. Mm. Or we can go wholesale, mm. I should say. Yeah. Yeah. So we help ourselves in a couple of ways, you know, employment. So
1: so in terms of the um, the space party, which yep. I'm all for? Um it has a friend on this programme. Uh, yeah. Triple <laughs> R. Um, in fact I think most of the minor parties do it triple we'll A. <laughs> <the streets laughs> <next laughs> yeah. yeah. where, where where are they where are they going to be um having um uh, people stand for seats to be what, what's the plan there? Will we, will there be someone in Victoria? Uh,
5: that's a little bit far out yet. We're we're sort of actually the meeting tomorrow night, we're having uh, we're having this basically the you know, launch, soft yep. launch of the space party. Mm-hmm. So um there's a lot of steps to go through at this stage, probably one in WA, the person who's mm-hmm. driving it is in yeah, Western yeah. Australia, but we'd like to think there'd be one in each state if we can get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a definite conversation starter and a lot of things are starting to align themselves. I mean, Christopher Pine just recently did the speech and, you know, to quote him, we need to focus more on expanding the space mm-hmm. sector. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I related to you before the... The changes. The changes yeah. in the... In the, yes, the Actually, we could be
1: just, we've just got a minute to go before we have to uh, go to a track, but um, you, you were just looking up the changes in the names of that ministry uh, over the last few years and you read them out. The sounds like an night. episode of
5: Utopia. But, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, pretty December, close. It does. <laughs> December 07 to December 2011, the department related to space was the Department of Innovation, Industry, and Science and Research. December uh, 11 to... To, to March 2013, Department of Industry, Innovation, Science, Research and Tertiary Education. March, 30, March 2013 to September 2013, Department of Industry, Innovation, Climate Change, Science, Research and Tertiary Education. Howard government elected. Uh, December uh, sub, uh, September Abbott government. Abbott government. Oh, For we're going too far back. there. September <laughs> 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 exactly. Yeah. September 2013. Department of Industry. That's all right. December 2014, Department of Industry and Science. Mm-hmm. We, we, back we, there. Remember, yeah. we got a science minister back there. Yep, making mm-hmm. some progress. Yeah. September 2015, Malcolm Turbull. It's now the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science. So they found, the, they've rediscovered innovation. So yeah. there's
1: hope for us. They it's could like chuck that. space in there. No one would even notice. It changes <laughs> that often. No one would even notice that it happened. Even the people in the very department, the only people would notice would be the people printing business cards for <laughs> them. <laughs> they keep going, woo they've done it again. <laughs> yeah. Talk about spend some cash. Peter, thanks so much for coming in today. No for doubt sure. we'll be talking about other big things that are coming up in the space arena for Australia and there's, um, there's exciting
5: things. There's a big... Big announcements coming up in the next couple of weeks in Melbourne and for the rest of Australia. So, um, some high profile people. Mm-hmm will S- be here. Stay tuned. Stay tuned to Triple R and, uh, and go to our website, space.asn.au and you'll get information there as well. And yep. come along to our meeting tomorrow mm. night. It's free, it's a lot of fun and you'll meet some really interesting people. Sounds good. So that's at the Caulfield RSL,
1: just uh, upstairs. Um, Peter Elwood, President of the Space Association of Australia, thanks so much for chatting to us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3
5: R in Melbourne, Australia.
1: And we have another guest in the studio. It is is Dr. To Peter Crouch. He is an NHMRC R D Wright Fellow in the School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Peter, welcome to the studio great thanks for having me in um now you work in an area which is i mean this is a a serious um condition that many people have i'll try and get the name right correct me if i'm wrong it's amyotrophic lateral
3: sclerosis als that's correct um what i'll probably do though is i'll talk about it as uh, motor neuron disease Mm -hmm. or or mnd yeah
1: yeah now i'll just get to move just a little bit towards the microphone there um First of all, in terms of motor neuron disease, what, what is actually happening? I think people have seen some high-profile versions of this on you know, television and so forth. Um, and it seems to be the breakdown of, of everything that allows us to control our bodies. I mean, but
3: more specifically, what, what's going on? Um, basically, within the uh, central nervous system, there's uh, specialised nerves um, known as motor neurons. Mm-hmm. And, and their primary job is to make sure that the signal's get from your brain to the muscles that help you move, uh, breathe, speak, swallow. So during um, motor neuron disease, what happens is that these particular cells in your central nervous system start to deteriorate. Uh, The reasons why they start to deteriorate, we don't quite know. uh, But what we do know is when they start to deteriorate, uh, the the deterioration is progressive and relentless. Mm. And
1: and I mean, when, when you say progressive, over what period are we talking about from sort of,
3: go to the point where people are essentially dying of this disease? Sure. Uh, It can be very variable, um, depending on the type of motor neuron disease you've got. Um, The general rule of thumb is that most people aren't going to survive about three to five years after their first diagnosis. Um, But of course that's dependent upon the stage during the disease that they were actually diagnosed in the first place. Um, so if the diagnosis is relatively late, mm-hmm. your prognosis may be relatively short. Uh, but then you've also got some natural forms of the disease, disease where it actually progresses quite slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, some some people can live with the disease for five, ten years. Right. I mean, it's not a long
1: time though. Even mm-hmm. when, when you say it like that, it's, it's actually a very short period of um, survival rate. Yes, of for, for absolutely. Like and, and who who ends up getting this disease? Is it something that is carried genetically from? From parents to children, or does it just pop up randomly? Who who ends up with ALS?
3: It's um like many neurodegenerative diseases. So uh, neurodegenerative diseases of the central nervous system. Yeah, the the most widely known and the most prevalent is Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've also got Parkinson's disease. Yep. Uh, motor neuron disease is uh, in that family of diseases, and there's a commonality across all of them in that most of the cases are sporadic. That means there's no clear reason why a particular person got that particular disease. Um, but similarly, there is a small percentage of cases in motor neuron disease, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, which are genetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of those cases uh, in motor neuron disease, uh, there's about, I don't know, 10 to 20 genes, which have already been identified as causative genes. Um, The first of these was identified about 20 years ago, the the gene for superoxide dismutase 1, SOD1. Um, That particular gene, uh, we we know what the gene is for. It encodes a particular enzyme in the body that's needed in every cell in the body. Um, That enzyme, its job in every cell in the body is to detoxify superoxide radicals. These are a form of oxygen that causes damage if Mm -hmm. left unregulated. Um, So the superoxide dismutase gene was... Mutations in that gene as a causative event in motor neuron disease was identified over 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, That accounts for only about mm, 2 to 5% of cases in the clinic. So the majority of cases of motor neuron disease are are sporadic. A small percentage are genetic, Mm. which does mean that the genes can be passed on to your children. Mm -hmm. Um, And of those genetic cases, the superoxide dismutase 1 gene is probably the best. Uh, most widely studied. Mm. Now, you've been working on developing a particular compound
1: um, called copper ATSM, um, which is maybe a potential treatment. So talk us through how this is going and where you're up to in terms of the development of this this treatment.
3: Okay, so... um... uh, Here in Melbourne, there are a lot of people working on neurodegenerative diseases, trying to understand the causes and trying to develop therapeutics. Uh, There's a good body of scientists in uh, in Melbourne who are doing this at the moment. in 2005 three guys got together they were talking mostly about alzheimer's disease at the time basically there was a biologist his name's tony white he identified a particular biological problem that that may help us understand the causes of alzheimer's disease and importantly a particular therapeutic target then you had this guy uh, across campus in the school of chemistry paul donnelly Uh, he had a particular expertise in making this type of compound Uh, and then So you had the biologist and the chemist who potentially could have done something together. What happened next was the inclusion of a medicinal chemist, Kevin Barnum. Uh, And he was the one who was able to link the biological need to the chemistry expertise. Mm. Basically, that led us to a a scenario where we could start using these particular compounds in the biological setting to start to identify whether or not these compounds may have therapeutic activity. Uh, Long story short is that a few years later, in about 2008, we did our first testing for copper ATSM. Uh, this is just one of the large family of compounds. We did our first testing for copper ATSM in uh, mouse models of motor neuron disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while the study took about a year to complete, the outcomes were very clear. The tr- you treat the mice with this compound, the mice actually got better. Mm. Uh, now, for those of you who don't know, uh, you can actually get mice which model particular human diseases. Yep. Uh, so these particular mice they express a mutant form of SOD1, the the enzyme that does cause some forms of motor neuron disease in people. These mice express this mutant form of the enzyme and they actually develop a progressive form of disease that looks very much like motor neuron disease in Mm. people. Mm. They're healthy up to a certain age and then they start getting paralysis, losing functionality of the limbs and then they ultimately die prematurely. Uh, We treated these mice with the copper ATSM and basically the, the rate of deterioration was slowed Mm-hmm. And the overall survival of these animals was improved. right. So so you
1: didn't you you couldn't actually dial up, you know go back in time. Once the deteriorations occurred in these mice, you could halt it maybe or slow it at that point, but you couldn't completely, you, you oh, correct, the, the yeah, d- yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. So, um I mean, yeah. You know,
3: still uh, amazing, but, um, but the, just to be clear we're, we're, um, yeah. where we're at. Yeah. But that, that's a challenge with uh, diseases of the central nervous mm. system, degenerative diseases of yeah. the central nervous system. It's very hard to replace damaged yeah. uh, neurons, yeah. uh, practically impossible at this stage. So something that halts the progression mm. of the disease would be a fantastic outcome mm. at this stage. Mm. Mm. So what, what we need to do before the end of this
1: interview, and we've got a couple of minutes uh, to go, is we need to provide some clarity for for those who are suffering from ALS, for those family members or friends of people who've got it, just on exactly where we are with this this sort of treatment, because we don't want people going out and you know, ordering things online or trying things themselves. You've done the work on, on the mouse model. It's, it's very positive. Where are we at now though, in terms of human treatment?
3: Sure, um, our, our work has progressed fantastically well over the last uh, six, seven years. Um, and we have got to the stage where we are hoping to get our drug into clinical testing phases. Now, uh, I should say straight away that there is no confirmed clinical trial yet, but rumors are starting to circulate. But to give this some perspective, uh, Mm. if I can, I'd like to read very briefly an email that I received from a bloke by the name of Danny in Melbourne. He's been diagnosed with motor neurone disease. uh, And his email kind of illustrates the, the urgency that these people are facing in terms of the need for a therapeutic that does something yep. but also their um their, their desperation to try something mm-hmm. so i'll just briefly no, please read do this email. Be, Yep, please do uh, danny from Melbourne says i'm a sod one carrier and i was diagnosed two and a half years ago but i'm still traveling relatively well in that i only have weakness in one limb thus far whilst i keep slowly getting worse i've been lucky enough not to lose any functionality in the last 12 months I know getting onto this phase one trial is highly unlikely to save me, but I really want my little five-year-old boy to know that when I'm long gone, that I did everything possible to assist in ridding the world of MND, especially as there is a good chance that I've passed the SOD1 gene onto him. And then Danny, uh, Danny asks, is the copper ATSM compound in the trial the same as the compound that can be purchased for research purposes? I ask this because people on a global forum that I'm part of are talking about purchasing a ac- at, purchasing it for their own DIY trials. So Mm. basically, we have got to the stage where we're now entering the first clinical testing of the drug, these are known as phase one trials. Phase one trials are designed solely to make sure that the drug is safe to give to people. Mm. That's the stage that we're approaching. We're not actually there yet. We're hoping that it will be announced relatively soon. When it does get announced, it'll get announced uh, via official uh, uh, avenues, something like clinicaltrials.gov, which is a a registry of all Mm. of the current clinical trials. Once it's officially announced, people can go to these sorts of uh, places for that sort of information, where the trial is going to be done, who's going to be doing it, and whether or not you can actually be involved in it. The second point that Danny raised, though, about the uh, whether or not the drug going into the tri- uh, trial is the same as what we've been doing in the mice, the answer is absolutely no. Um, drugs that work in mice uh, can't just immediately be given to people. So that concept of a DIY trial using a research-grade mm-hmm. compound <coughs> is a very dangerous concept. Uh, the, the drug development companies that take this drug into the clinic, they spend a lot of work making sure that what we've developed in the mice can actually be translated mm. to people with the mm. disease. Mm. Well,
1: I think um it's important we get that information out there, Peter. What I will do is I'll ask you to to let me know when um when the trial does start and as uh, you know we can we can make people aware on the programme as well and get the word out there. Absolutely um, absolute message though, so, you know, don't don't try and sort of I know this is a time-sensitive issue for many people, but you will actually probably, you know, there's a good chance you'll make things a lot worse if you um, try doing what is, you know, asked about in in that email from Danny you read out. Absolutely, yes. Peter, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us. It's, a, it's an area where we hope there's some, some good progress soon. That sounds like your initial work is, is very, very promising. Hopefully that will translate quickly and hopefully this will be one of the areas where we can maybe speed through the trials a bit, bit faster than what has, you know, been the historical norm uh, where possible. But I know, I know all that comes down to funding and so forth as well. So um, good luck yep. with the trials and um, keep us posted on how it's going.
3: Excellent. Thanks for Thank you for giving me the opportunity to
1: talk about this work. No problem at all. Peter Crouch is uh, NHML C.R.D. Wright Fellow in the School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Melbourne.
0: You are listening to a podcast from
4: Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia.
1: We have a guest in the studio. Our third and final one for today is Dr. Alicia Oshlack. She is from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Welcome, Alicia. How are you going? Good. Thanks for having me. Do you remember about 20 years ago I was your second-year lab teacher?
4: I remember, clearly.
1: <laughs> was it a bad experience? No. <laughs> oh, I've never
4: forgotten you for some reason. <laughs> oh, isn't
1: that yeah. nice? Yeah. I must you know, have done something bad.
2: You're out from earlier about getting older if it's in that context. <laughs> yeah, I know.
1: It probably wasn't quite 20 years. It was more like 15, but it was a while back, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, you're going to have to tell us. You So, back then, you were in physics and you were in the School of Physics at, at the University of Melbourne. And somehow now you're in the Murdoch Children's Research Institute doing work on big data. How do you make that transition and why why did that happen?
4: Yeah, so bioinformatics is, I suppose, a field where, as you suggested, we look at big data sets and we work out how to analyse it and, you know, how to extract important scientific information from mm. the data. And... Um, when I was in the physics department, I was working in astrophysics yeah, and I remember. we were working with large data sets and data sets that came from telescopes. And I suppose some of the tools that we use, some of the computational tools, statistical tools that we do to make sense of the data in astrophysics are some of the same sort of concepts that we're now using with genetic or genomics data. Mm. So I transitioned from um, from the physics into... The sort of biological sciences um, more than 10 years ago Mm. and really actually before bioinformatics became such a big field like it is now. Um, But but I suppose I I managed to transfer those skills that I'd learnt in physics um, into biological applications.
1: Now, I'm not sure if you were like me, but when I was back in physics, you know, if you'd taken me into this new environment, there would have been a conversation that probably went something like, what is that? Oh, we call it a cell. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, my, my biological knowledge was pretty minimal. Yeah. I mean, you, you're dealing with a lot of data. How, how much biological knowledge do you do in order yeah. to do this sort of work?
4: Now, when I started, that was exactly the conversations mm. I was having. I went to an interview for for my new job in bioinformatics and I'm like on the internet going, what's the difference between a gene and a chromosome? I was really naive about the area. The good thing
1: about that is most bio people can't explain that (laughs) clearly clearly without... It's a circular... You need you a know, physicist uh, gene, to explain it, probably. Gene, <laughs> gene codes for protein. What's a protein? With a gene, It's what a gene codes for. Yeah. Yeah. With You know, what's a gene? Oh, it's yeah. what prote- proteins are coded from. <laughs> uh, you get that circular discussion, I mm. find. It's very hard to get a clear answer. Mm. <clears>
4: but <throat> now I, f- I find, you know, I, I find it really important to understand the problems that I'm working mm. on. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I can make the most contribution when I really understand the problem I'm trying to work on. I'm not going to be the expert. I'm not going to be the domain expert in the actual problem. Yep. But, so, I have a lot of collaborators and they're the real experts in, in the particular sort of bio, biological problem or medical problem that I'm working on. But I need to have some level of understanding to really understand what it is that I can contribute in mm. that area. So, mm. it is important.
1: Now, give us an idea about your, your actual work because I know you work on a range of different uh, rare diseases and various things yep. um, just to sort of talk us through how that goes mm. I mean someone at some stage gives a blood sample I assume and and, and there's a, a, a gene sequencing which I guess years ago you know when you were back in physics was worth a fortune yep. now mm. what thousand bucks or whatever you know we can do this what what happens then I mean when yeah. when do you get involved and, and what do you do
4: yeah so one of the things that's only probably um. Um, you know, a, a small set of what I do is um, work on problems of diagnosing rare disease. Mm-hmm. So if you have a child that comes into Children's Hospital with a severe rare disease, then sometimes we don't know what gene has been mutated. We know it's a genetic condition, but we really don't know. It could be any range of a number of genes. Yeah. Um and knowing what gene it is can actually tell us what sort of therapeutics we might want to do or what sort of outcomes this child might have in the future. Um, so what we can do now with these new technologies is we can um, take a blood sample or even um, a saliva sample and get the DNA, say, of the child and we can sequence it Um And these are technologies that really only became first available in um, about 2008, and they're just getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So now we're able to sequence pretty much their whole genome fairly cheaply. Mm -hmm. But the way that happens is what they call like massively parallel sequencing. So you get the whole lot of DNA, but it's all chopped up into millions and millions of tiny fragments of DNA. And... And you can sequence those fragments all in parallel. So you get all the data, it's all in there, but it's all in these tiny little fragments of DNA. And that's really the raw data that really comes to us. Mm -hmm. And then we figure out the computational and statistical ways to sort through that data um, and analyse it quickly and accurately to say... This is the little mistake in the DNA mm. that's um, resulted in this child having f- having this um, mutation that leads mm. to their
1: disease. Mm. And, and how often does that happen? I mean, I remember talking to one of the senior researchers down uh, there when I was running one of the um, Healthy Kids seminars as MC, and... He, he put up the statistic that in 10 years he'd managed to diagnose 200 patients, which when I first heard that, I thought, you know, we'll get out of bed earlier. <laughs> but then, I, but then, you know, hearing his talk and just how extremely difficult it is to diagnose some of these things, I thought, wow, this is an extraordinary achievement. I mean, how often do you and your team manage to do this? Is it something that, you know, once a month is, is yeah. a big win?
4: Um, we've been working on a project called Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance. Mm. And I suppose there's a difference between diagnosis and discovery of a new gene, right? So often we can diagnose... We can diagnose... um, Well, we have been in, in rare childhood diseases... More than 50%, but about 60% of the childhood cases that are coming up. But most of those are diagnosed in genes that we already know cause a disease. We just didn't know yep. which one it was for this particular right. child. Mm. And that's different from gene discovery where we can see a, a mutation in the DNA, but there's still a lot of work to go to know whether that mutation is the cause of this charts mm, disease, right. and that's that's a different thing. So, um, so we do work on that, but then you have to follow it up with lots of other experiments and on lots of other mm. things to make sure that you know that really is the mutation mm. that causes this. And
1: we disease. often talk about individual genes, but in most of these cases, there's there's a lot involved, mm. isn't there? It's combinations of of different genes, and you know you you hear about, um, for example, I think with things like um, MS, you know, the number mm. of genes that have been yeah. discovered that are linked to MS. Mm. And you think, gee, how do you, how do you work out which ones are the ones that, you, how do you do that?
4: Yeah, so we call that sort of complex disease mm-hmm. where there's lots of little um, contributions from a lot of different mm. genes. What we're dealing with is rare severe disease and usually they're like one or two mutations um, and they're usually de novo, they occur in the child, they can be recessive, but you know it. You know they've just come about, and you can see them as very disruptive for mm. a certain disease. Obviously, you can see that they're, they're easier mm. in a, in some ways. In some ways, <laughs> to to diagnose, um, they're definitely the cause. Whereas something like MS has lots of small genetic component plus an environmental component, and they're, and they're much more tricky, I suppose,
1: yeah. in some ways. Alicia, look, it's great talking to you about this, and I think it's, it's also wonderful for those people out there who, and I know they're probably not listeners of this program, who say, you know, astronomy is a waste of, of thing to fund. You should put your money elsewhere. Well, I mean, this is an example where, you know, someone who used to do astronomy dealing with big data sets has ended up working at the Children's Hospital in the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. They're trying to save kids' lives. Oh, there's a link you can tag your, your, your little pink slip <laughs> to. Um, it's, you know, it is good stuff. Um, I hesitate to think uh, they want to go anywhere near the levels of data you do because I know it's immense. Um, But thanks so much for chatting to us today and good luck with the continued work with the Genomics Alliance.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: Dr. Alicia Oshlack is from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute down on the Melbourne Children's Campus. We are almost out of time, folks, and we're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It. If you're wondering what tracks we played today, the first one was called uh, By High as a Kite, called Something Who Will Get It. Sorry, Someone Who Will Get It. Um, Paul Dempsey with uh, Morningless and and the last one was The Last Shadow Puppets with Bad Habits. Dr. Lauren, thanks so much. Good luck with your experiments. Yeah,
0: thank you. I'll keep gestating that.
1: Yeah, keep, <laughs> keep building that. And uh, we will monitor your memory and intellectual capacity and demonstrate that it doesn't go down during pregnancy. That would be good. Um, but we'll continue to give you crap over that anyway. <laughs> Dr. Ray, thanks for coming in. Short notice. Pleasure. Always fun. Yep.
2: Um, as we do that monitoring process, let's hope no one else's memory starts to wane. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I,
1: I, I reckon if you track mine versus Lauren's, she'll probably win out because mine's <laughs> dropping off. And live for doing our Twitter feed. Uh, always hiding in the corner. But uh, sometimes you hear her on the graveyard shift. She does some shows herself when she just doesn't like to come on mic when I'm in charge. <laughs> We're going to hand over to either. I'm Dr Shane. Thanks for listening. And remember, science is everywhere. Have a great Sunday.
0: This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.